I am Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. Glad you decided to listen in today. Joining me on today's program will be Mr. Michael Pento. You've probably seen Mr. Pento on uh, CNBC or Fox News. He is a regular commentator on all things financial and economic. He'll be joining me in segments two and three of today's program. And he's got a forecast for you and your money that you won't want to miss. You know, I want to talk a bit in this segment about something that you may have heard about, but maybe has never been completely explained. One of the most reliable predictors or forecasters of a recession is something called an inverted yield curve. As we'll discuss with Mr. Pento in the next segment, the yield curve has inverted nine times since the 1950s, and each time, on average, a recession has followed within 20 months. Now, what does an inverted yield curve mean? Well, as the name implies, it means the yield curve is doing the opposite of what one might expect it to do. See, normally, if you're going to go out and buy bonds. And when you're buying bonds, you're essentially loaning a company or a government money. The longer the loan is for, the longer it is until the bond matures, the more interest you would expect to earn on that particular bond. Well, when the yield curve is inverted, it simply means that interest rates are higher on shorter term bonds or shorter term loans. Now, if I go back and look at how U.S. government debt closed the month of August, a 30-year Treasury bond is yielding 1.96%. So in other words, if you were to go out and loan the U.S. government money for the next 30 years, you would get back less than 2% on your money each year. Now, listening to that, that probably doesn't sound very attractive. Now, if you were to go out and buy a one-month treasury bill and loan the U.S. government money for one month, you can earn 2.1%. A one-month treasury bill pays you 2.1%. A 30-year bond pays you 1.96%. You earn more interest on a 30-day loan to the U.S. government than you do a 30-year loan to the U.S. government. Does that make sense? Well, if you're listening to this today, I'm sure it probably does not. Why does this happen? Well, the short explanation is that investors see more risk short-term than they see long-term. And when that happens, the yield curve inverts. Incidentally, if you look at U.S. government debt yields from one month to five years, the yield curve is completely inverted. 2.1% is the yield on a one-month treasury bill, and you can go out and buy a five-year debt instrument and get 1.39%. So this has been historically, as I opened the segment with, a very reliable indicator or forecaster of a looming recession. Now, there are other indicators as well. The wealthy are cutting back on spending. Now, when the wealthy cut back on spending, it significantly impacts the U.S. economy because the U.S. economy is very dependent 
upon consumer spending. It also impacts how stocks perform because companies need to grow their profits to have the stock market continue to rally. Well, let me give you just a bit from this CNBC article that was published on August 28. The rich have cut their spending on everything from homes to jewelry, sparking fears of a trickle-down recession that starts at the top. From real estate and retail stores to classic cars and art, the weakest segment of the American economy right now is at the very top. Now, when the middle class and broader consumer sections continue to spend, economists say that the sudden pullback among the wealthy, well, the broader group of consumers spend, could cascade down to the rest of the economy and create a future drag on growth. Now, real estate, certainly luxury real estate, is often a canary in the coal mine, mine, to use an old analogy, for the entire real estate market. And luxury real estate this year is having its worst year since the financial crisis, according to the CNBC article. Manhattan, which is arguably one of the top few priciest real estate markets in the country, Manhattan real estate has seen six straight quarters of sales declines. Or according to Redfin, sales of homes priced at $1.5 million or more fell 5% in the United States in the second quarter. The article says, and I quote, unsold mansions and penthouses are piling up across the country, especially in ritzy resort towns, with a nearly three-year supply of luxury listings in Aspen, Colorado, and the Hamptons in New York. But it doesn't stop there. High-end retailers are also not doing well. The famous store Barney's recently filed for bankruptcy, and Nordstrom has posted three consecutive quarterly declines in revenue. Meanwhile, it would arguably be potentially the other end of the spectrum, Walmart and Target, which cater more to the everyday consumer, are reporting stronger than expected traffic and stronger than expected growth. And if you want more evidence the wealthy are spending less, at this month's massive Pebble Beach car auction, which maybe nobody listening to this attended, but this auction is known for smashing price records. People at this auction open their checkbooks and write big checks for the most expensive exotic cars. Well, that changed at the most recent auction. The most expensive cars faltered on the auction block. Less than half of the cars offered for $1 million or more were able to sell. You might feel badly for those sellers. Maybe you don't. But cars priced at under $75,000 sold quickly many for far more than their estimates. So the wealthy are pulling back, and the wealthy have a lot more discretionary income to spend than the middle class or the lower class. So that could be a bad sign for the economy, along with the inverted yield curve. Now, if we get a recession, as typically happens, we'll see stocks and likely real estate prices pull back, perhaps even pull back significantly. My question for you is, are you ready? 
Have you taken appropriate actions in your investment portfolio, in your IRA, in your 401k to be able to survive and even prosper from an asset price decline? If you haven't, I've got some additional resources I'd like to offer you for free. You can simply go to the website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, and there are resources available there. You could also go to socialsecuritydinner.com, and we have an upcoming event in your area uh, where we talk about not only maximizing Social Security, but protecting assets from price declines. And again, the website there, socialsecuritydinner.com. I'd encourage you to check both of those websites out. I'll be back with my special guest, Mr. Michael Pento, after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on the program today is a returning guest expert, Mr. Michael Pento. Uh, Michael is the president and founder of Pento Portfolio Strategies. You can learn more about his work at pentoport.com. And uh, Michael, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me back on, Dennis. Well, Michael, let's just, there's, there's so much to talk about. Uh, We've got $17 trillion, I believe, is the number I just read, of negative-yielding sovereign debt around the globe. Uh, this is just lunacy, in, in, in my view. How do you see it? Well, I mean, I wrote extensively about it even this week. It's like uh, I phrase it as the central bank's time machine, and the time machine is now broken. So what happens is when you have $17 trillion, about 16 now because there's been a, a slight rally in the, in the German 30-year boon, but you know, a couple of days ago, the entire yield curve in Germany and in parts of Europe, from overnight lending to uh, the 30-year boon, was negative. And what happens when you, when, you, when you disincentivize savings in this manner is you end up killing productivity. So, the, so you think about it like this. What is savings, but deferred consumption in economics. And if we, as a, a potential saver, have an option set in front of us, we can consume our wealth immediately, or we can defer that consumption for a reward in the future, which is based upon placing your money as an investment out on the duration risk curve and garnering some kind of yield. However, when you are assured that if you hold your savings out to duration, that you will lose money in nominal terms. And then on top of that, you are assured through central bank policies of inflation targeting that you will lose even further when adjusted for inflation so if you have a negative interest rate of, say, 1% and then a 2% inflation target, you're guaranteed to lose 3% on your savings. So why in the world would you defer your consumption to save? You would not do that. You would consume right in the future. And if you don't save as a nation or as a, a country, you will disincentivize the function of productivity. Without savings, there can be no investment. Without investment, there can be no productivity. 
and that is half of the GDP formula. So there's productivity and growth in the labor force. And if you don't have productivity and if you don't have growth, all you have is a increased velocity in the spending, in the consumption cycle, you'll have what I call and what is known throughout the world since the 70s, stagflation, like we've never seen before. So, Michael, what's your take on this? I mean, uh, not, not only do we have negative yields, I mean, when you look at the uh, you know, U.S. Treasury, we've got the, uh, the, the 30-year bond now yielding less than the 30-day bill. Uh, so we've got an inverted yield curve. Are you of the, uh, the school that this is uh, a, a pretty reliable recession forecaster? <laughs> Well, before we leave the negative yielding uh, uh, sphere, I just want to comment so your your audience understands that we are so far in the twilight zone zone as far as the uh, negative yields are concerned. There are now $1 trillion worth of junk bonds in Europe that have a negative yield. So no. you just you just think about that. So junk bonds historically may default around one one fifth of the junk bonds default, and you get paid a uh, yield that's several hundred basis points above your sovereign benchmark at a very minimum. So junk bond yields, you know, you figure the, the normal treasury in the United States is usually around five six percent going out ten years, and then a junk bond is usually around you know close to double digits eight to ten percent. But in Europe. Since bond yields are negative, uh, and an Italian 10-year is lower than a U.S. 10-year Treasury note, then you have to ask yourself the question, what is going to happen to investors when they realize that these bond yields are going higher? In other words, if the ECB, the European Central Bank, ever decided to withdraw its massive purchases of bonds – you would not accept a negative yield on a junk bond, seeing as how you're probably going to lose your money on the principal as well as making no money at all on the income stream, on the interest rate. So there's going to be a yield shock throughout the globe like we've never seen before. That's something your investors should prepare for. So, so let, I'm, I'm let, let, let's, I, let's, let's continue on that line, then we'll go back to the okay. inverted yield curve here in the U.S. But, uh, mm-hmm. So what, is this, what does this end game look like? How does this end, in your view, and how will investors be affected? Just to pick up on, on, on what you just said. Well, I, I, you know, if you look back on bubbles, bubbles never burst innocuously. You know, it was a bubble in the uh, 70s for gold that burst with uh, astonishing ramifications for precious metals investors. There was a bubble in uh, Japan stocks in 89. Uh, that's a 30-year hence from that moment of bursting where Japanese stocks are still down 50% and their real estate market's in shatters. Their banking system is compri- comprised of zombie banks and just kept alive by the state. They have no real capital. They just exist and, and can't make loans. Um, if you look at the, the NASDAQ bubble in 2000, and the devastation that caused for investors, 83% of the market value of the NASDAQ wiped out. The bubble in housing market, 33% nationwide home prices burst. So, so bubbles never burst innocuously is my point. And if you have $16 or $17 trillion worth of sovereign debt with a minus sign in front of it, with a negative sign, the, the, the bursting of this bubble is is not only exponentially greater than the housing market. I think uh, – let's just put it in context. The subprime mortgage market was $1.5 trillion 
in 2007. Now you have $17 trillion worth of sovereign debt with a minus sign. There's $5.4 trillion worth of junk and triple B bonds in the United States. These are all going to implode, Dennis. So the rates are – bubbles don't burst innocuously. So when the bubble bursts in, say, uh, an Italian tenure, they're not going to go from 1% to 2%. It's going to go from 1% to 10%. And junk bonds aren't going to go from minus 1% to, you know, 2%. They're going to go to 14, 15% in Europe. So what that means basically is that the credit conduit, the, the credit channel is going to get shut off just as it did in the fall of 2018. In other words, a lot of these companies will not be able to borrow money, and a lot of these companies exist only be, only because they can borrow money to pay interest on existing debt, just to service the interest on existing debt. So they're basically zombie companies. They're only kept alive because there's a massive inflow of cheap money. When that dries up, and it will, bond yields will soar. A lot of companies will get cut out of the credit, uh, access to credit. Uh, triple B bonds, which are one notch above junk will then be junk. That market will be flooded with triple B debt, which cannot be supported by the, the demand for junk bonds. So you're going to have a, I mean, let's just be honest. There's the math and the data and the history all show we're going to have a recession like we've never before seen. Now, I don't want to sound like a, a Cassandra. That's not my job here. I'm just, you know, I'm one of those individuals who correctly pinpointed the bubble in the NASDAQ, the bubble in the housing market. I believe I've correctly pinpointed the the hysteria, absolute uh, lunacy that is taking place place in the global bond market. And when that bursts, it's going to de burst with devastating consequences. Now, when will it burst? It's going to burst when either we have a recession where the credit channel gets shut off or when central banks achieve success in their inflation targeting. When inflation is inculcated into the minds of investors, and we see yields start to spiral higher because they must, because you know you, there's a, a force of nature, like a hurricane. A force of nature is that uh, interest rates should provide investors with a real yield, a real after-tax yield, so a yield that's higher than the rate of inflation. Well, yields, real yields are profoundly negative across the planet. That cannot last forever, and the only reason why it's lasting now is because Investors are sort of convinced of deflation or disinflation. When they become convinced because of the success of central banks that there's inflation, the yields will spike, and that's when the credit channel shuts down, and that's when, when all the heck really breaks loose. Now, if you want to touch really quickly on the inverted yield curve, Dennis, it's not di di different this time. You know, I, if, I just wrote a piece about it, and you can find it on my website, pentaport.com. Um, it, 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 it's it's very very it's on my podcast actually um, if you go and subscribe to the podcast and you can have a free trial for five weeks by the way so it's pentoport.com it's very clear that central bankers have no clue about much of anything in economics but especially when it comes to the inverted yield curve they're especially uh, misinformed so Green Greenspan said it uh, Bernanke said it Yellen said, said it and Powell said it. All the same thing. And the inverted yield curve is different this time. Greenspan assured us that it was not a problem in 2005 and 2006. Bernanke was 
assured it wasn't a problem in 2007, yet it was exactly the reason why we had the housing crisis. Because an inverted yield curve isn't just some exogenous event that is coincidental in its predictive power towards recessions. It actually causes recessions because when you as a banker or a shadow banker have to pay money to your creditors or your depositors, get paid pretty much the same rate or even greater than what you can garner from a loan, you stop making those loans, especially when those loans are becoming much more risky and are much higher, uh, a much higher rate of default. So the credit channel eventually shuts off after the yield curve inverts, and that exacerbates and helps precipitate a downturn, turn, downturn. And it is absolutely not different this time. So, Michael, based on some of the numbers you were throwing out, uh, the, the level of uh, a negative uh, yielding sovereign debt we have now versus the 1.5 trillion uh, of subprime mortgages. It, it sounds like that that this recession, in in your view, and you're predicting that it's going to make the last one look uh, pretty mild. Is that? Am I reading that correctly? Um, that's the way the math uh, look. I mean, if like I said, it's a 1.5 trillion subprime broke down brought down the housing market brought down the housing market, brought down the economy. I mean, if you have all of this global uh, bond bubble that is pervaded across the entire planet, that breaks because of inflation or recession. And when the junk bond market implodes and sovereign debt yields start to spike, uh, either one of those situations is going to bring down the valuation of stocks. See, stocks can, you know, let's be honest, the growth rate of earnings is pretty much zero. And it's at the same level over the last year and a half. The, le- the, rate, uh, the level of earnings growth has pretty much flattened out over the last year and a year and a half, along with the stock market, the level of stocks. Now, you can t- make an argument to me to explain why stocks are just two percentage points off their high and trading at 17 times a phony EPS earnings per share, 17 times earnings, 17, 17 and a half times earnings. You can make an argument for that because interest rates are low. So there's no growth, but interest rates are very low. So um, people say that the market is fairly valued based upon low rates. If you have no growth and interest rates spike, that argument falls to pieces. And you're very likely will have a stock market plunge, which also will coincide with a Bond price plunge yields higher, and you talk about wipeout like uh, you know we've never seen before. Pension plans, uh, uh, it, 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 you know, I hate to say how, how devastating it could become, but that's that's what the math and the data and the history will tell you. Because you, when you compare one trillion, one and a half trillion of subprime to seventeen trillion of negative yielding. You know, the subprime debt was never <laughs> negative yielding. You know, you do have negative mortgages in Europe as well. So, I mean, we have uh, the entire $100 trillion global bond market, sovereign bond market, in a bubble. And we have never seen that before. And when it bursts, uh, you'll, you'll see, uh, I believe, un- unfortunately, you'll see how right I am. 
Well, we're going to have to leave it there for this segment. Our guest today is Mr. Michael Pento. Uh, his website is pentoport.com. You can learn more about his work there and get a free trial to his podcast. I'd encourage you to check it out. I will continue my conversation with Michael Pento when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. I am Dennis Tuberg, and you're listening to RLA Radio. I have the pleasure of chatting once again today on the program with Mr. Michael Pento. Michael is the president and founder of Pento Portfolio Strategies, and uh, you can learn more about his work at pentoport.com, and I would encourage you to check it out. So, Michael, we talked in the last segment, uh, or left off, talking about the fact that we could have uh, a big decline in stocks, a big decline in bonds, and our average listener uh, out there today uh, uh, monitoring our conversation is saying, well, wait a minute, in my 401k, I have stock funds and I have bond funds. What does that mean for me? What would you say to them? Well, I mean, I don't think uh, most people in their 401k are 90% bonds and 10% stocks. I think uh, it's quite the opposite. If you look at pension plans and most of these uh uh, other avenues of retirement funds, um, they're all overweight stocks because they just can't meet that magical 7 8%, 9% uh, number of a return to keep their pension plan solvent by buying fixed income. We talked in the last segment about all of the trillions of dollars of negative yielding debt. Well, I mean, you can go out 30 years here in the United States, lock up your money for 30 years, uh, and get a 2% return per annum when you need to get 8%. So, I mean, if you're minus 6% per annum, your pension plan is already massively underfunded. You're not going to make it solvent by buying bonds. So what you've been forced to do is going way out on the risk curve and overweighting stocks. So most people in their pension plans and their IRA funds, 401k plans are way overextended, not only to stocks, but some of the most risky parts of the uh, stock market, fangs and the momentum stocks. So if you ask me if you're probably something like 70-30 or 80-20 uh, stocks to fixed income, which means when the stock market implodes, as it always does, I mean, let, let's be honest, um, the last nine times the yield curve inverted since 1955, we've had a recession. And recessions usually bring the stock market down around 50%, 30, anywhere between 35 and 50. The last two times, the S&P 500, the last two times we had a recession, the S&P 500 lost 50% of its value. And by the way, that doesn't happen you know, years after the yield curve inverters. An official recession usually occurs around 20 months after the yield curve initially inverts. Uh, but the decline in the stock market, the peak in asset prices usually occurs three months. In fact, 60% of the last, 60% uh, of the time, the yield curve is inverted, the stock market has peaked in the next three months following that inversion. And by the way, the inversion between the overnight lending rate, the Fed funds rate, and the 10-year note has been inverted now for four months. So stock prices are going to implode again in the next recession, probably lose half of, half of their value or more, uh, because they're even. if you look at total market cap to GDP, they're way more extended than they were in 2007. In 2007, the total market cap of equities divided by the underlying GDP was around 100%. So it was about even the same. Today, it's 145%. 
So it's only been this high in, in the year 2000 with the 2000 uh, NASDAQ bubble. So stocks are going to lose a whole heck of a lot of money. By the way, the NASDAQ lost again 83% of its value in, from 2000 into 2003, I believe, is when it bottomed. Um, so you're going you're gonna to lose a lot of money in your equity market. And if you think that you're going to make that back by your bond holdings, then you should think again, because bonds right now in the United States, if you have a 10-year note yielding around 2%, um, even if the bond market were to go to 1%, you know, if half of its value it is not going to make up for the decline in stocks. And it's even more the case because the proportionality of your asset diversification is massively overweight stocks. So I have a model. I created a model called the inflation, deflation, and economic cycle model. And I ask myself, this model tries to divine for me where the economy sits along the cycle between growth and recession and inflation and deflation. And if you know where you are in that cycle, you'll know where to buy stocks. So should you be overweight uh, momentum stocks and FANG stocks? No. You should be, as my model tells me right now, we have been in for the last several quarters, we've been in a disinflationary environment, which means you want to overweight bonds, underweight stocks, and you want to, the stocks that you do hold should be bond and bond-like proxies. Now, that might sound unusual coming from someone who wrote a book called The Coming Bond Market Collapse. But I am a, an active money manager. I manage the money here like a hedge fund without all those fees. So what I do is I model the economy and I make the appropriate changes based upon that model. But the model tells me eventually both stocks and bonds will blow up. And that could happen concurrently, Dennis. In a stagflationary environment, you could have, like we had in the 70s, both bond prices and stock prices fall in tandem. So you're 90, 10, 80, 10. I don't care what your mix is in that, in that particular uh, perspective. None of that's going to save you from uh, from the current from the from the coming crisis. So you have to be able to be you know you can't be a passively managed pigeon. You must actively manage your money because this is not this is the times we have now, Dennis, are unlike we've ever been before in the history of our planet. We are in truly unprecedented times. You have never before seen such a, a, a rampant amount of negative debt. You've never before seen central banks issue their their moral obligation of price stability and actively pursue pursue an inflation target. Um, uh, you've never before seen asset prices at this level. You've never before had debt uh, uh, across the globe reach $250 trillion, up $70 trillion since the, the Great Recession. We're now at 330% of global GDP. So you have a record amount of debt, record asset bubbles, and central banks that have run out of ammunition, virtually run out of ammunition. I mean, what is the ECB, what is the European Central Bank going to do this month in September? They're going to meet in September. Are they going to lower interest rates? They already have a negative deposit rate. So, I mean, by destroying the, by destroying the amount of money banks get by keeping their reserves with the, with the ECB further, how is that going to help the banking system? How is that going to help a consumer? You know, we, I, I mentioned $250 trillion in debt, Dennis. 
we are in, in such a, a state of, of what I call a debt-disabled world. So at any interest rate, even a negative rate, if, if you as a consumer cannot afford the principal payment on more debt, lowering the interest from zero to minus 10 basis points is not the solution. So, Michael, based on everything you're talking about and based on what we've seen happen in the metals market this year, um, are, are, are investors kind of catching on to the fact that, you know, may, maybe banks will go back to QE and that they've got to be in tangible assets like gold and silver? That's exactly what's happening. So, uh, you know, gold is an alternative currency that doesn't pay any interest. I mean, you can lend it out. Uh, there are some ways of garnering interest. But for the most part, most investors will just own their gold and pay some a small storage fee. Um, and and earn no interest, but you know what else doesn't earn any interest anymore? <laughs> so, <laughs> fiat currencies debt. don't earn any interest. Yeah. yeah, fiat currencies don't earn any interest anymore. So the competition for gold has gone away. I mean, you used to say like, let's let's come up with a scenario where you know I can have gold, earn nothing, or earn ten percent interest in a bank when inflation is zero. What's what's the what's the calculation there? I mean, that's a no-brainer. You would sell all your gold and buy yourself some fixed income instrument that yields a real yield of ten percent. But when real yields are negative, nominal yields are are zero or less than zero, and then inflation takes those yields even further negative, then it's a no-brainer. Of course, you have to own gold and silver. And since central banks are hell bent on bringing everybody to zero, in fact, even Alan Greenspan, who I, you know, I hate to quote him, but maybe he finally has something right. He says we're going to negative rates here in the United States. Yeah, he said well, it's just a number. Don't worry about it. It's just a number. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we have negative nominal rates here in the United States, and you have inflation targets that are, you know, we're already at our inflation targets. By the way, Dennis, we've already achieved. 2% or about 2%. In fact, core CPI has been over 2% for 17 months in a row. So, I mean, I, you know, how much more inflation do they want? I mean, but the, the point is that if you can own gold, which is not going to lose you any money, uh, there's no, there's no um, foregoing of potential interest payments. In other words, if you, you could own your money in the bank and lose money, guaranteed in nominal terms, or hold gold and not lose any money, then there's a no-brainer, especially when inflation gets inculcated into the minds of investors. So if that's the case, if interest rates are going to continue to fall and uh, inflation target, inflation targeting continues, then I mean, I think gold is just beginning its move higher. Well, we've got about two minutes left. Comment, if you would, Michael, on the fact that modern monetary theory is actually gaining traction in what you might consider to be mainstream political campaigns, or maybe we wouldn't have thought they were mainstream a few years ago. But <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, modern monetary theory is uh, basically not very modern at all. It's been around for decades. It's been tried multiple times across this globe. Um, but it's a natural extension of what happens when uh, quantitative easing has been exhausted. So quantitative easing is the process of having a central bank purchase assets in a primary dealer or a, in, within the banking system. And the hope is, and what happens is the banking system goes out 
and says, okay, you just bought an asset from me, a mortgage-backed security or a treasury, and I'll go out and buy more treasuries and more mortgage-backed securities, or maybe I'll just keep the money and earn excess interest on excess reserves. I'll park it at the Fed, or maybe I'll just gamble in the stock market, which is what ha- which is what happens. But if you have uh, a central bank balance sheet, by the way, we didn't even talk about. We can talk for days, Dennis. But the central bank balance sheet went from 700 or 800 billion prior to the Great Recession, all the way up to four and a half trillion, where they only were able to take it back to three and a half trillion. So when you try QE, you've increased um, reserves by you know 2.8 trillion dollars, and you weren't able to. You permanently monetize that debt. You weren't able to take it away, and. Um, your your economy starts to shrink at that point. Well, I mean, if you're already back to zero, you could try QE again, but you you already know it's not a viable long-term solution. So what they're going to do, it's a natural extension of QE. It's going to happen probably uh, to a greater extent. It's already happening in Japan, but it's going to probably happen to even to a greater extent in, in Europe. Is the the natural extension of QE when it fails is modern monetary theory, which is really just another version of helicopter money. In other words, instead of going through the banking system and making your you create you know you have a printing press, you create credit. Uh, it's done electronically, electronically, but you create new money and new credit. And what you do instead of buying assets that exist in a banking system, you directly send it to the public. So you circumvent the banking system. So you either directly buy treasuries from the treasury, you directly buy JGBs or European sovereign debt directly from the the uh, government, or you send out you send out checks to the, the population through things like universal basic income. That is mo- modern monetary theory. That's the next phase. The next. Uh, 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 you know, uh, proper, I guess, in their minds, way of dealing with a crisis that cannot be ameliorated by just taking interest rates to zero and printing money and giving it to banks. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Mr. Michael Pento. Uh, he's the founder and president of Pento Portfolio Strategies. His website is pentoport.com. I would encourage you to check it out. And Michael, always a pleasure to catch up with you. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Dennis. We will return after these words. You are listening to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Welcome back, and thanks again to Mr. Michael Pento for taking time out to chat with us today. You know, in the first segment of today's program, I talked about the fact that the yield curve is inverted, something we also talked about with Michael Pinto. I also talked about the fact that signs are pointing to the wealthy cutting back on spending. And that's potentially very bad news for the U.S. economy, which, as we'll talk about in this segment, is very dependent on consumer spending. In the first segment, I pointed out that luxury real estate is having its worst year since the financial crisis. If you're in the market for a home in Aspen, Colorado, or in the Hamptons in New York, there's about a three-year supply of luxury listings available from which to choose. Barney's, the high-end retailer, recently filed for bankruptcy. 
And Nordstrom has posted three consecutive quarterly declines in revenue, and yet Target and Walmart are reporting stronger than expected traffic and growth. So what's driving this? Well, if we dig into this a little bit more, we discover that lower income consumers may be funding much of their spending via credit cards. This from a publication titled Inside ARM. And I'm quoting from the article. The Bureau notes that the credit card market continues to grow. Outstanding balances continued to grow, ending 2018 above pre-recession levels, referring back to the financial crisis. The total credit line across all consumer credit cards was $4.3 trillion in 2018. $4.3 trillion, that's about 20% of the U.S. economy. In other words, consumers have on credit cards right now 20% of what the United States produces in an entire year. That is significant. Now, a recent article on the balance points out how important consumer spending is. Consumer spending was $14.24 trillion on an annualized basis as of the first quarter of 2019. Now, U.S. gross domestic product was $21.06 trillion. So if we take $14.24 trillion as a percentage of total economic output, which is just over $21 trillion, we find that consumer spending makes up 68% of the U.S. economy. Now, where is that spending directed? Where are consumers spending this money? Well, two-thirds of that $14 trillion is on services like housing and health care. One quarter is spent on non-durable goods like clothing and groceries. And the rest is spent on durable goods like automobiles and appliances. And we already know that the wealthy are cutting back on their spending and that consumers are really using credit to finance much of their spending. And there was another piece on The Motley Fool this past week that confirms this. The Federal Reserve Bank of New York put out its latest report on U.S. household debt and found that Americans collectively owe about $13.54 trillion. That amount has risen for 18 consecutive quarters, so about four and a half years. And get this, it's 21% higher than the $12.7 trillion owed in 2008 during the height of the Great Recession. Seven million Americans, according to the report, are 90 days or more behind on their auto loan payments. It's a signal, economists say, that Americans are struggling to pay bills despite other indications of a strong economy and low unemployment. Six and a half percent of all auto finance loans are 90 plus days past due. That's about one in 15 loans that are past due. I could also bring up student loan debt, which is now nearly $1.5 trillion and has even more serious delinquency rates. Now, when delinquency rates rise, when people get behind on debt, what it tells us is that debt levels may be approaching their limit. See, in our banking system, 95 plus percent of money is debt. 
Less than 5% is the green stuff that you carry around in your purse or wallet. Over 95% is debt, and when there's too much debt to be paid, common sense tells us that all that, not all that debt will get paid. And when it doesn't get paid and people default on debt, what it means is money disappears from the financial system. We like to say it goes to money heaven, and what that means is deflation kicks in. And we learned this at the onset of the Great Recession. When debt levels reach their limit, consumer spending soon falls. It drops off because consumer spending, much of it, as we just discussed in this segment, is debt-driven. We do have now more consumer debt than we had at the beginning of the Great Recession. Wealthy people are beginning to pull back in spending, and the yield curve is inverted. What does all this mean? Well, in my view, 2020 is shaping up to be a very interesting year, economically speaking, and probably politically speaking as well. The important thing is that you are prepared. And we have additional resources. If you didn't catch the first segment of today's show, let me just remind you that you can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. We do have some resources available there. And we talk about these issues as well as maximizing your Social Security benefits at an event that we have each month. You can go to socialsecuritydinner.com and get more information about the next event in your area. The website, again, is socialsecuritydinner.com. That's all the time I have for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.